0: How's it, guys? You're listening to sasurfski.com. We're all about surfski. We're all about paddling. And your host, Robin Tyndall is coming in hot straight out of Cape Town. So, guys, welcome to S.A. Surfski podcast. Uh, The last one we did, we had world champ Haley Nixon. This time around, though, I'm uh, sitting here with uh, David Mocker, multiple world champion. David, am I right? How many times world champ?
1: I won the Surfskis World Series uh, from 2009 to 2012, so it's four times. Four times back-to-back. Time.
0: Back. So uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, your, your list of achievements Thank goes on and on. I think anyone who's ever been around the world of serfskis knows your name and knows your brand intimately. But, um, but let's, let's dive a little bit into your backgrounds. So I know you come from a life-saving background. So kind of, you know, what were That's your achievements in life-saving? And, and kind of jumping straight in, David, the, the life-saving led to surfski. What was the transition? How did surfski come to be a big thing in your life?
1: Yes, thank you, Robin. Thank you. You're very kind. Surf life-saving started sort of by accident. I moved to Fishhook from Durban, When I was eight years old, my family relocated here. And Nippers was one of the things which I started on Fisher Beach. Only uh, about three years after we moved here actually, when I was 11, I started doing Nippers. And that's really where the love for the ocean and the sea started. And Nippers obviously led on to surf life-saving. And the awesome thing about surf life-saving is in fact that you have this dual, this duality of, of being a community service as well as, as a sport, and, and really the sport supports the, the why of life-saving. It's, it's about being fit. It's about being capable, confident, and fit enough to save a life, basically. And then I really bought into the ethos. I loved it, and I still do. And that's what makes surf life-saving so awesome. So my, my early sporting career or days was, was definitely firmly established in surf life-saving, and no offshore paddling. The, the furthest that I paddled on a surf ski was – was perhaps to Musenberg and back to, to paddle through the waves and do backline practice, which is about 10 kilometres. And it was only much later on, when I was 24, or 25, that I started open ocean uh, surf ski racing. So surf lifesaving I was very, very serious and passionate about. Still am, and I made the national team for South Africa three times. Uh, I went to two Tri-Nations events and one world lifesaving champs event, and my specialty was actually not paddling, it was board paddling the paddleboard race, and then Ironman racing. And I was contemporary with uh, with Matthew Bowman. Many people know Matthew from surfski paddling. And we, we were in a number of national teams together and we competed against each other. And those really formative years in terms of knowing what the ocean is doing and, and building on your skill level, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an awesome sport. And racing in and out through the surf and, you know, what makes it such an amazing sport is that you're not just competing against other guys you're also competing against the elements so you have this this uh this con- constant you might be uh, the, the fittest athlete but but you can catch you know someone catches away from the back and, and passes you you get, you get smoked on the on the bank when you're paddling out so it's really is an awesome sport in that way and then obviously all the events are very very unique so i, I did that for, for a long time and then in 2001, sort of at the same time as, as when I was at my best in surf life saving, I decided to do my first open water paddling race just as to see what it was like. You know, Billy Harker was down in Cape Town. He'd been running a series for a number of years. And I never really competed in those races at that stage in my life. I was also, uh, I just felt that, that I had to set Sundays aside, um, you know, for, for, for church and, and the races were on Sundays, and that was just a stage in my life that I had to go through um, to, to, to establish my, my, my faith, really. So I, there was a number of years where I didn't race on Sundays, and then and in 2001, I really felt like, okay, this is actually what I'm meant to do. This is what I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd like to give us a crack. So my first open ocean race was a, a race that a guy called Nigel Reynolds organized and was called the King of the Harbour, and it was to mirror a King of the Harbour race in Sydney. And we raced from Hart Bay to Camps Bay. And it was just awesome. I just, uh, I had to borrow a ski. And I remember I borrowed Anthony Pierce's ski, a guy down here in Cape Town. And he, he was really incensed because I took out, I took off all his stickers from the, from the PG's London Challenge. And, uh, <laughs> and he has nailed me. And I, and only now do I realize, hey, actually, a guy's stickers on their boats, they're quite particular about their stickers, you know. But, um, And that was my first race and I came 10th in that, in that race. And, uh, but I just loved racing around the Sentinel and through the reefs. And it was, it was great. I was actually leading for a while next to him, but I fell in love with it there. And that's when I, and then I started doing Billy's races on Sundays and it, I started winning one or two them, and realized, hang on a second. I, I, I think I can do this. I reckon I could, I could give this a crack. Um, and in 2002 is when I decided to follow my passion, which was then paddling. And I quit my daytime job, which was in a software company. And I started the surf ski school in 2002 in order to, to paddle full time and, and race full time. So that led on to 2004 when I did my first international uh, surf ski race. So in 2002, 2003, I was still doing surf lifesaving. And then in 2004 was the first time that i traveled independently of a team or of you know, national color, just on my own, an international race. And that was the King of the Harbour Race in Auckland, in New Zealand. And, and I won that race. It was Nals Graf, I got them by a, this by a Norway. I just, just won it uh, against Tim Jacobs. Tim Jacobs was, uh, many people know who Tim Jacobs is. And he, at that stage, was uh, Australia's foremost Asian paddler, also in the Olympic team for sprints. And uh, and for me to have won that race was awesome. And, yeah, so that basically is where the where the journey started in 2004 uh, in terms of racing. But the surf school started in t- 2002. And I think in the whole race in New Zealand, that really also was for me. You know, I basically looked at, at the prize money that was on offer. It was... Second, third, and then I looked at the cheapest plane ticket that I could find, and I was on on Emirates. Emirates had just started out then, and, and they had this flight which basically took you halfway around the world: Cape Town, Joburg, Joburg, Dubai, Dubai, Singapore, Singapore, Brisbane, Brisbane, Auckland. You know, so after I got got to uh, Auckland for you know after like years of traveling, um, uh. I realized the cheapest ticket, if I come in the top three, I'm going to make a profit. And that set the tone for the next, what, 14 years
0: um, of going and traveling to races. So that's where it started. Actually, I, I, there's a question I've been dying to ask, not particularly of yourself, Dalva, but of peddlers of your caliber. So just a slight kind of sideways step here. Uh, you're talking about you know, financing and figuring out if you could you know, make a money or just break even. So in terms of traveling and prize money and so forth. So, you know, you're not, we'll chat a bit later about your current kind of paddling approach and goals right now, but it wasn't too long ago that you were a traveling professional. For the most part, it seems to be for us on the outside, making your money out out of being a pro paddler. So the current crop, you're still talking to these guys, you know what's going on. How do these guys finance and these girls, you know, finance traveling the world like they do because these guys are traveling everywhere. The prize money is certainly growing, but it's still not significant. It's not golf. How do these guys balance that? How do, how do, they, how do they make a living? Yeah. Are they making a living?
1: Yeah. So the, the, for me to answer the question, you know, it, I just need to be blunt, it's mercenary. And uh, basically you put up the prize money, the guys are going to be there because it is quite mercenary. And, and uh, you know, But at the same time, I've, I have a firm belief that the higher the caliber of, of athlete at your event, the higher the caliber of your event, you know, period. And there's a lot of events that, that are awesome events but that don't perhaps offer prize money and don't get the top paddlers there. And you can, you can really just see the status of, it, of an event is lifted. So it really is a, for an event organizer, it is a, it's a difficult situation because you've got to offer enough prize money to attract top paddlers. Because having top paddlers at an event really makes, it, it's, it's awesome in Seriously Paddling where everyone can measure themselves against the best paddlers. And that's why it's important for events to have high-caliber paddlers at their event because seriously, paddling is like one of the few, if not the only sport, where you get to really measure yourself against the world's best on the actual start line. You're actually literally lining up next to them. Uh, and it's also one of those sports where there's a, like a really big family feeling amongst paddlers. So it's important that we maintain a high-caliber of athlete at, at the events. How do guys finance it? Well, I mean, the short answer is you, you, you're hustling. Um, in the beginning stages, for me, it really was a matter of, of faith. And, and, and in fact, all the way through is a matter of, of faith, just believing, hang on, somehow I'm going to find the money for this ticket. And, uh, and I, once I've paid for this plane ticket, it's going to, you know, I need to have a, a good race. And then the prize money will balance out the, the cost of getting there. And then um, have you'll know, have a profit. That being said, it's it's a lot easier for South Africans to do that because all the prize money is in American dollars, or in Australian dollars, or New Zealand dollars. So when you or euros, so when you do the conversion, it's quite good when you bring the money home. But for guys that are in Australia or in America, it's a different story. You know, for them, uh, it really is a a, 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 a labor of love. It's, it's something that they're really passionate about. And I think that is kind of where you start. Is that you. You you're passionate about it, and because you're passionate about it, you pursue it, and and it, it actually at the end of the day, it isn't really about the money, for, for you know especially the, the current crop of, of of Aussie paddlers, you know and now the last few years sponsorships have come through and it's, and it's been a bit more worth their While but really you look at a guy like Corey, I mean the guy's got a full time job, now, that's where he's making his money, but he's he's Fortunate enough to be able to get enough leave to go to these events and race, and it, he does it because he's passionate about. It. He loves it, you know, and and he's good at it. And that's that. So when I say professional, wrestler, it's actually really semi-professional because most of the guys are going to have to do another job or have an, have something else where you actually earning your income. I, on the other hand, went all in, and and the Sylvestri School. You know, if I wasn't racing or or training, I was teaching people how to paddle, and the surgery school enabled that. Uh, but fortunately, uh, there are people that back the the peddler, so the, the big paddling brands and these are the equipment manufacturers. So guys like my sponsor for for years, Fenn, and then you know my brother's sponsored like by Epic, the Rice Brothers are sponsored. I think uh, on on their details, but. But uh, fortunately, uh, Finn O'Keefe saw value in, in, in me doing his events and, and, um, and promoting his, his brand. And he paid for a lot, of, a lot of the airplane tickets. So for me, if you can cover the cost of traveling there, then from there, it's, that's by far the biggest expense is the plane tickets to get to, to, get to an event. Then of course the next expense is accommodation. But if you if you know people there, you can stay at someone's house, uh, or you can you can club together with a few guys, get an Airbnb, and bring the cost down. Then it starts to become doable. So the biggest cost to, to get over is the is the air, air, airplane ticket. Now it seems like there's a lot of races where the actual prize money is going to cover the cost of an airplane ticket plus some, which is a great place to be. And and I can. And it's already started happening. You can see that these races have become a lot more competitive because prize money is going a lot further down. And because, you know, if you do well, then then there's quite a healthy profit margin there. So that's uh, the, the answer to that one. Does, it, does, that, does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. You yeah. know, Just a little insight into what it is. And I think that the message I'm getting there is, you know, when we see these guys, when we see Sean Rice kind of all over the place, Jasper, and, uh you know, it's, it might look—I wouldn't say glamorous—but it certainly looks like they're living the life, traveling. But what I'm hearing is, as you say, these guys are hustling. You know, sharing rooms, and it's—and uh, it's—it's yeah. it's a phrase of yours which you, you shared with me ages ago, and I think you share everywhere. That's that's really stuck with me, and I think it's as you say, passion precedes purpose. Uh, yes. and, um, I think in a lot of cases, that's exactly that. I know that's also one of the tenements of the Mo- the up um, um, product uh, padding product mm. as well, and certainly something that's close to to your heart. But I want to kind of use that as a springboard into one of the talking points I wanted to cover with and that's your opinion on on the state of surf ski paddling and I want to talk about it within South Africa but for now I want to talk about globally do you see professional surf ski paddling uh, growing it's certainly growing as a sport we can we can see that maybe not in South Africa but we can see it globally there's more and more boats being sold and more and more people getting involved with it on different levels do you see the professional side of it ever kind of getting out of this, this hustling factor where guys can actually make a, a decent living, we start becoming on the level of some of the pro mountain bikers, um, I mean, yes. golfers, yeah. you know, where, where does it go? Do we have that, do you think that potential yeah. lies within our sport?
1: The, I, I do think so. It really is up to, it, it's, a, it's a simple equation of volume as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the more volumes of people that there are paddling, surfskis the the more support there is for the for the, the sport itself and i know that we in terms of the type of sport we are we, we, we can easily compare ourselves to mountain biking it's a it's a, it's a classic mix of of fitness adrenaline and uh, and and racing so or adventure so adventure Fitness and adrenaline—it's sort this, of this, this lethal mix of a sport. There are very few sports that can offer you that, where you get to compete. It's very adventurous. It uh, ranks high on the adventure scale, and um, you know, it's—it's—you uh, you have to be fit. You know, you compete, adventure, and uh, third i don't remember, racing. Um, but racing, yeah. And um, but even mountain biking. I mean, cycling is massive. You know, it's, it's, there's millions of people that do it and, and that really is the scale that, that you need to get to. Paddling, where you have two paddles and you sit in a kayak and you, and you move forward, is just about there. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the reasons that the Sersky School is so close and hard. And anyone that really teaches people how to paddle, for me, I think that the way that we're gonna grow the sport is by getting completely new people into the sport. So we, what we don't want to do is convert current paddlers uh, to surfski ski paddling. What we want to do is we want to get someone off the street uh, who sees it happening. And you know we are literally telling them, this is a paddle, that is the top of the paddle, that is the bottom of the paddle, this is a surfski. ski, it's like a kayak, it's tight in the kayaking family, that's the front, that's the back, and you steer with pedals, that level, if we can really focus on growing the sport at the at the base level, uh, then you're going to start bringing in those volumes. And it's everyone that listens to this podcast, yeah, I I presume, and we all know that paddling is there's two facets to it. One is that it's completely limitless in terms of water paddling sport. There's no body of water, whether it's ocean, river, lake. Lots of wind, no wind, lots of surf, no surf. There's no body of water that you can't paddle a surf ski. Any other kayak, there are limits to. Now, you're not going to take a, a K1 on a downwind, all right? But you can take a surf ski down a K1 course. You're not going to take a white water boat uh, in a flat lake. I mean, you can, but you're not going to because it's not what it's made for. It's, just, it's slow and it's going to be horrible. But you can take a surf ski down the river. Look at what's happening at the fish in a number of river races, in Australia, everyone understands you know surf skis can go down rivers, so it's limitless when it comes to water. And that's, it's. I think it's. I stand to be corrected. People might might debate it with me, but I think it's the only kayaking, which is limitless. You can paddle it anywhere, any water, anything. You can paddle a kayak. You can paddle a surf ski. And then, the, obviously, what makes it unique is this this uh, this concept of downwind paddling, paddling downwind, riding open ocean swells with a surf ski. That's what really sets it apart. White water boats go over waterfalls. Uh, touring cars go camping. Uh, Leisure float on the beach with your family. Um, surf skis go downland. So while you can paddle the surf ski in any water, any conditions, uh, ultimately at some point a swell is going to pick up the back of your ski, and you're going to be you're going to get the sensation of riding a swell. And you're going to think to yourself, whoa, what's going on? Whoa, what's the speed that I'm getting? Oh, this is amazing. I want I want more of that. That's what sets it apart uh, in the world of kayaks. So really, uh, and and uh, a number of people call it the future of kayaking. And, and I think that if you can grow those volumes at the bottom where you're teaching new people fresh off the street, this is a search ski, this is a paddle, uh, and more people take it up from that point of view, Then, and we're talking here about professional athletes. At that point, it really is about how much money is getting put into the sport by the brands. And if you look at any of the other sports where there are highly paid professional athletes, that prize money is not coming necessarily from uh, brands that that aren't associated with that sport. Those kind of level of sponsorships you get in like major sports like tennis and and golf where you're getting these other brands which you've got a lot of money which are associating themselves. But in things like mountain biking or surfing, those sports are supported by the brands that come from that sport. So, so those, those, and you know, I'm talking to myself here as, as a brand, Mocha as a brand, and all the other surf ski core brands, we have a responsibility to put money back into the sport. So the more that that we as brands can support events and grow that profile and support our athletes, uh, the higher that sort of professional athlete uh, era will come, and that, it seems to be happening right now. So, so, what I'm saying is that I'm saying is that 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 brands, uh, the actual surf ski brands, uh, and I'm not just talking about the manufacturers of actual boats, but also uh, apparel. I mean, there's in the, in the world of Searski right now, we have, obviously we have Finn and Mocha, but we also have Epic and Think and Carbonology. We have bi We've got that new brand that started out faster, Father, um, And these are, you know, seven brands which are really, you can, their origin is out of, out of Searski padding, maybe, perhaps, maybe not Epic, um, but, the, you know, that's, and those brands have a responsibility to step up first uh, in, in, in supporting these events. And but then it's fantastic that we have paddlers like Graham Solomon from Bamboo Warehouse, you know, or we have Earl Evans from um, Sean Partners. Uh, these are paddlers, um, Patty Maloney, uh, and and it's, it, I really can't thank these guys enough for, for what they do. You know, um yes, there's obviously a, a return on their investment um, that they they're getting exposure for their brands, but really they're doing it because they're passionate about it and once again, here we come back to the, the one of the essence or the essentials of safety padding is that the people that are involved in are really passionate people and um, but, no, that's, that's,
0: yeah no it's it's it, it's it's lovely to see this momentum that we're getting right now. I want to I pull us back a little bit to the grassroots. You were saying getting new people into paddling, getting people off the streets. And certainly something that, that uh, we're trying to do potentially with the Freedom Pedal as well is open up Serbsky to a wider community where people can see us and observe us. Because often what, what we do is, is uh, out of the ocean, and people can't see what we're doing, and mm-hmm. we're out in crazy windy mm-hmm. conditions and no one wants to come down to the beach. So, you know, you're at yeah. paddling school now, probably one of the very few kind of grassroots ways to get involved with paddling. But even then, there's a step. Those people have got to identify surf ski paddling, realize they want to get involved yes. in it, and then find someone and then make a booking before we can really access them. Yeah. So where, where's yeah. your head at now with actually transitioning people from not even knowing that surfski exists to getting them onto the beach and paddling through a wave for the first time?
1: Uh, the responsibility lies with the actual surfski paddlers. You know, get your friends to come paddling. You know how awesome it is. And, and please, please do not tell them to paddle uh, an unstable boat, or a false boat. You know, the, the uh, I, uh, I did Flick flex and Jumps of Joy when the Searski brands started putting in, in boats that people could sit in without tipping over and, and just be stable. Uh, and that really has done a lot. And I think we need to continue in that vein. And so now, every person that's listening to this podcast—you obviously listen to this podcast because you love thirsty paddling, You want to hear about things. You, you actually have a responsibility to tell your friends, get your friends peddling. And if you don't have access to stable virtual—and this is not a punch for my business—but but you know, there's there's a few of us around. Uh, go get lessons that someone can learn how to paddle in the first one or two or three sessions. And literally one wave is all it takes to get someone hooked into the sport. Uh, and then once they can catch one or two waves, you know, putting them in the, in the back of a double and going for a downwind paddle sort of in 15 to 18 knots of downwind is the next. And, uh, and that's, it. That's, that's how we'll grow the sport. So that's kind of where my head is at. I really feel that um, there seems to be a lot of coaching happening. Around the world, and it's awesome that, that that some of the top paddlers are able to transfer their skills and really coach current paddlers how to be better paddlers. But we actually need to be focusing on getting people, off, getting completely people off the off the street and into boats, and um, and that's you know I, I I would like to see that happening. You know, surf ski schools popping up all over the show. You know, I've, I've I have helped a few guys uh, to start schools. And you know, truth be told, if you've got a little business where you're selling skis, that is one of the best ways for you to generate a market is to just to teach people how to pedal because once they know how to pedal, they're going to have to buy a boat. So, I mean, that's what, Sursky, that's what the Searski School have been doing for I mean, just on, what's it now, 12, 14, 14 years? 2012 to 2018, is, how many years is that?
0: that's six yeah. years turning yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah i mean sorry 2002 to uh to, yeah 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 is that how long have been doing it man <laughs> so yeah that's uh that's that's, what, that's that's what we do
0: well for those for those listening for those paddlers out there who aren't listening let's just put it just put it bluntly um, and i'm more than happy you've got to punch a punch punt up the paddling school there um Darby. If guys are listening right now and they've got friends, how do they get them paddling today? They can take them themselves, but they want to put them through a structure like you've got. What do they do right now?
1: Yeah. Well, I guess, well, if you're in Cape Town, uh, you can come to our surfski school. So you can go to surfskyschool.coz, go to the website and book a lesson or two. And we operate out of Fishhook. I know that there's another uh, uh, Richard Kohler, I think, does lessons. Beginner lessons. There's a we, we have a surf ski school in Port Elizabeth uh, that r- runs from the paddling shop. Uh, we used to have a surf ski school up in up in Durban uh, that used to run. I don't know if that's running anymore, but but I do know that there's another school there.
0: Um, I, f- I forget their name. the name. I think Jackie Boyd's uh, Paddling Academy.
1: Yeah, and and you can go f- fresh up in South Africa. So if you want to learn how to paddle. Uh, I'm not too sure if there's anyone offering lessons up in Northern KZN uh, or in East London sort of these centres, but but certainly certainly if you come out to Cape Town, and I have quite a few people that have come to Cape Town on holiday to learn how to paddle, Uh, so that's an option too. Come for a few days, uh, literally it takes perhaps three or four sessions to to get it right. You're also not going to be the world's best paddler. In three or four sessions, but you're going to know all the basics, you're going to be safe and your paddling career would have started from there.
0: Um- yeah, I think, I think internationally as well, we can't speak to it too much, but I, what I have picked up is paddlers are very, very friendly. So you know, if anyone yes. out there wants to get into paddling, you know, literally just go down to your local club, be that a surf lifesaving club or whatever body of water. is yes. probably a club around there doing some form of, of kayaking. And uh, you know, you start yes. asking questions, they'll point you in the in, in the in the right direction for sure. But David, let's okay. circle back, you know, we, we started this podcast by talking about where you've come from in your, in your in your lifesaving and paddling career. I'm interested to know where you are right now because you're still paddling. You're still winning races. I'm seeing it. I'm still kind of getting on the start line with you and watching you disappear yeah. in the distance. So what's going on in, in David Mocker's life right now from a paddling work-life balance? What are your goals? Where? What's going on?
1: Yeah. So, the I mean, in terms of... The, there's there's very, not many straight black and white that, that, uh, or comp- comp- compartments to... to to my life or work-life balance because it started with a surf ski school, which was sort of a path to be a professional paddler. That led itself to a, a, a retail store uh, in terms of work and income. And and the retail store, the paddling center, was literally was just because uh, I was to paddle and they wanted to buy gear. And at that, at that stage, I didn't feel that they were getting. The right service from shops, so I started one, and and, and obviously sell service keys and that led into starting the brand. And when we launched the brand in 2012 uh, with uh, with our, our our life jacket, the PFT, and so uh, at the same time, obviously, you know, Nikki and I, we got married in 2001, and. Uh, we spent a good number of years without any children. Nikki went to the Olympics, and then yeah, you know, we had Samuel a year later in 2009, and then we started our family. So all this time, I'm a so and and you know, your your life starts and, and life carries on, and you your life moves in, in phases and and stages. And right now, where the where my family is at is that uh, it's not it's not about me anymore as much, it's not actually fair for them to, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into, to me uh, traveling, not on my part, but on my family's part. And I think most paddlers are gonna, are gonna traveling paddlers are gonna resonate with that uh, in terms of the top paddlers. You know, it's an individual sport. There's one guy that crosses the line or one, you know, it's just you racing, but no person, not one of these athletes does it without the help of a team around them. And that's true in life, actually. Uh, there are there, You always have a team of people that support you in what you do. And my family has, has made a lot of sacrifices. Obviously, it's how I've earned an income. But right now, uh, my children are at a place where they're starting their lives. You know, they've got their interests, their things that they want to do. And it's unfair of me to ask them to sacrifice that uh, their dreams, their passions uh, to, to allow me to, to pedal. You know, Every time I'm away, it's harder on Nikki. She can't get to certain sports events or certain things for the kids. Uh, it puts a lot of pressure on, on everyone. So, and it's, kind of, it's, it's been happening for a number of years, obviously, as the kids get older. It's just that in this year, uh, I realized, you know, when I came back from one of the trips, I, I just realized, hang on, this is not sustainable anymore. Another question is, you know, you know, you can, you can carry on doing that, uh, but then there's going to be a sacrifice in terms of relationships, or you know, your kids are going to, say and, and you'll only see the effect of that many years later in your relationship with your kids or how things turn out for them. So, and I, and I don't want to be that guy, that 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 where my, my my kids never you know, I'm always on a trip or I'm always getting ready to go to a trip or I've just come back from a trip um, so from now on where, where I'm going is you know I'm still wholly su- supporting the, all the events around the world and uh, in terms of you know I, I, I want to see them happen but as much as possible I'm going to try and bring my family with me if we're going to do these events um, or I'm going to try and get other people to go to them you know, so like Ian, Ian Black, who works for me. Uh, this year has been an amazing year for him. Look, his kids are the same age, but maybe a little bit different for, for Ian. It's 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 part of part of work for him as well. Um, but yeah, so uh, like I was saying, for me personally, it's going to slow down quite a bit now. It's going to be one or two events that I pick a year, that I'll go to, and you know, they have to be. They have to be more than a, more than a week away. Uh, it's got to be one week uh, maximum away, or perhaps over a weekend, to go and do these races and support these races, because I want to you know, obviously it's what I love to do, I'm, I'm, I want to be involved, and you can't just remove yourself completely. And it's important for the brand uh, that we be there, and we stay involved, and, and stay in touch with all the events. So either expect me to be there in and out, uh, like a rock star, or expect the entire market clan to be there for weeks, on end, and um, yeah, we'll try and get the whole family to travel to to these races.
0: What does your um, what does your training regime look like now? Because I've obviously being a pro athlete now, and, and you're still really quick. I want to kind of dig into the to the to the man behind the pedal.
1: It's going to be quite a long answer, but basically, um, and this is going to be very really valuable for any young peddlers listening, or if you're a father of a, a young peddler, then maybe you want to fast forward into this section uh, when it comes to training, and. Uh, I've had a few paddlers, young, younger paddlers, who, who, who uh, you can see there's a bit of frustration in their eyes or in them when, when I beat them uh, because they know that they haven't seen me training on the water. They've been pulling two sessions a day, and uh, and I arrive at a sea dog race or at some event and and then win or beat them, and there's a bit of frustration. There. And what what paddlers must realise is that training is not it's. It, it's not a, a, a few-week endeavor. It's also not a few-month endeavor. It's, it's, it's not even a few years. Uh, where, where, where I'm at, you know, I started training really hard when I was 17. That's when I started swimming, actually, swimming training. And, uh, and when I was 17, I started training really hard. That's when I started doing, you know, two sessions a day of training and for safe life-saving. And that didn't stop until I was uh, in my early thirties. So you're talking about decades of day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, obviously not just blindly going paddling. You need to you need to have structure and there needs to be a training plan and you need to work with professionals. You need to work with your nutrition, you need to have a coach. Co- having a coach is very, very important. Uh, someone that you can bounce of how you're feeling and your training programs. But at the end of the day, it's about consistency. It's about being consistent and remaining consistent. And consistency is the essence of progress. So I have a base, uh, and my, my dad used to call it miles in the arms. You've got miles in the arms. Uh, and look at a number of athletes my age uh, and who are still competing at a high level. You know, two come to mind Hank and Matthew. Uh, but then you also look at look at people like Oscar, you know, who's or or, uh, or Dean. These guys did a lot of training in their younger years. So don't be if you're a, if you're a new athlete and you're in the early stages of your career, don't be despondent when you do all this training uh, for a whole year and and you don't get the results that you that you thought you might get. You might get good results, but remember that it's about consistency. And also, the more that you and the more that train, the more experience you get. It. You form habits. You form little habits, uh, training habits. It's 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 virtually impossible for, impossible for me to go an entire week without doing some kind of training, just because my body's formed this, this habit of doing it. And in fact, if it gets close to that, Nikki actually kicks me out the door and says, "You need to go paddling because you are grumpy as heck." You know. So so. Um, your body forms these habits, and and that, that's how you you know that's how you build from one year, build on to the next year, build on to the next year. As you become older, as soon as you start hitting now, here's the wonderful thing from sports science. When you are eighteen, between eighteen and thirty, or your early thirties, you are you are as a male at least, you are getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. There's like a really high curve as you get stronger and you improve. And then that sort of peaks in your early thirties. You look at a guy like Jasper now, for instance, you know, where he is, my brother, he is like peaking now. Um, then, here's the good news for the rest of us who are past that, that mark. The decrease, from there you start, you, you can't really get much stronger. But if you look at a graph on paper, the decrease is a lot slower. So if I ask you the question, how fast I paddled at 18 on a graph, and then the graph gets higher and higher, I get faster and faster and faster, and it peaks when I'm 30. At what point on the decrease do I reach the same speed that I was paddling at when I was 18? What age would you think that would be?
0: Well, if, if, Logic determines it's 18 years later, but I'm guessing you're going to say a lot longer than that.
1: 65.
0: There we go. When I'm
1: I'm going to be paddling the same speed when I was 18. Okay. Now, well, 65, sort of mid-60s. All right. So, for anyone that thinks that maybe Oscar's going to slow down, well, good news for you. Okay. He, you know, however fast he was playing when he was 18, that's how fast he's going to be going in the next few years. So, so it's, a, it's an awesome place to be. But what happens when you get older is two things happen when you get older as an older athlete. So, first of all, the young athletes just Make sure you train consistently. Don't don't miss training sessions. You you miss one training session a week, all right? Over a month, you've missed half a week of training. Uh, Really. I mean, you you can't – you just have to be consistent. Obviously, you you don't want to get sick, and that's why it's important to have a training plan. And that's why you have to work with the organization. You have to have – you have to have a base phase. You have to have a strength and fitness phase. You have to have a, a peaking phase. Uh, and I mean, we can't get into that kind of science now. But there's a lot of athletes around that you can go and ask. If you don't have a coach, uh, then get a coach or or uh, go and ask some of the other athletes how to train smartly. And basically, if you're in your teens, early twenties, you know, you need to you need to uh, if and this is what you want to do, then do it. Train hard, set some goals. You know, you can't, you can't train without a goal. If you don't have a goal and you're just blindly paddling, it's not gonna last very long. Okay, but if you've got a goal, I, I want to be a multiple World Series Series champion. That was a that was goal of mine. Then I said, okay, for that to happen, the following things need to happen. And you make a list of all the tasks that need to be completed, all the steps that you're gonna take to get to those goals. And then once you've got all the steps that you need to take, okay, for for my first World Series, I need to do this race, that race, that race, now I've got all the steps. To do these races, I need to be able to pedal these distances. I need to be able to pedal this speed, all right? So in my first International Series, World Series Series that I won, the average speed that I had to maintain to win a race at, at that level was 13 kilometers per hour, average speed.
0: Right? Do you, do, you want, do you want to take a guess what the average speed is that you need to to maintain now? I, it's going to be significantly faster. 14 and a half is my guess. 14,
1: 14 and a half plus. Oh. Okay.
0: If you want to, if you
1: want to win a 20k race at the level now, 2018, look just and do me a favor. Go and look at the average average speeds of, of races, and it's, it's actually better when the conditions are light. But you'll you'll find that it'll never be less than 14. And a half, run about there, is the average speed on a flat day. Um, obviously, when it's done, when the average speed goes, sky, goes skyrocketing. But on a flat day, when my first World Series, my average speeds on flat days was around 13 km an hour. Now that speed is 14 and a half. That's just progression. I mean, that's just how things progress. That's how things get more competitive, guys are training harder, smarter. Anyway, the point is when you're younger, train hard. When you're older, two things happen. Your motivation level drops because firstly you have other cares. So I've got a business, I've got a family, I've got other things. It's hard it's it's hard to stay motivated to go training when you've been doing it for decades early in the morning and you've been, you've been training. And then the other thing which changes is that you your ability to recover is is changes. So now all of a sudden you can't recover as easily. So you have to train smarter. You know, you can't do those two sessions a day because your body takes longer to recover. Also, if you get injured, injury takes longer to recover recover from. So if you do something stupid like go for a trail run on a technical trail and, um, you know, twist your ankle, that's you out for a lot longer than when you were younger. So your training has to change when you get older to be, um less frequent and more intense, basically. Uh, with with and I, and I don't have to do as many distance pedals. Yeah, and this is where this is where I I uh, am so envious of a guy like Hank who's, who's got those all those Berg River marathons behind his name from when he was younger. You know, he's got so much distance on his arms when it comes to an ultra distance or a long distance race, you know, those, he's got those miles banked that are going to be there forever. For me, to get that kind of bank is, uh, is going to be near impossible, you know. And that's why it's important, when you're younger, just put those sessions away, boy. Put those sessions away. If you're curious about racing, uh, you won't be sorry. Mm. So, one
0: interesting yeah, thing is... is uh, no, a fantastic answer, David. Thanks so much. I think there's gold in there, especially for myself as a guy who's getting older and uh, yeah. to, you know wish I got into the sport a lot younger. But rolling, rolling on from that, and, and what I'm about to ask you is a whole podcast in itself. So I'm going to ask you to kind of just okay. pick one or two highlights. And uh, okay. what I'm coming at is, as we get older, we have to get smarter. You know, in any sport, we play more with our brains than we do with our brawn. And in mm-hmm. surf paddling, probably the biggest kind of you know, uh, brain activity we can do is downwind paddling. You get you get guys that you'll yeah. destroy on flat water. You get them onto a downwind, and these guys and girls have fun a little, and they've squared it off, and they're gone. And you're one of you are know, yeah. someone who's very famous for a downwind technique. You, you run downwind courses. So, curtailing this right down. Give us one or two nuggets that are going to make the the guys already doing downwind what's he doing wrong? How can he just go that little bit quicker?
1: You all
0: right. Well, for starters.
1: You can join a downwind camp. We run the downwind camps. There you go. Aaron Fisher, you'll definitely improve. Downwind paddling, there's three things that I can mention here. If you're a novice downwind paddler, there's three things which you need to be able to do to go downwind paddling. First is you need to have explosive fitness. You need to have explosive fitness. You can't run out of the guys that takes, you need to be able to explode out of the blocks. You need to have that explosive fitness. You need to be able to change your uh, your intensity in a heartbeat. So you need to be able to go really hard really, really, slow, really hard, really slow, really hard, really slow, really hard, really slow, and your, your body learns how to do that, okay? Uh, down padding is not this endless chug, 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 there's intense moments and then less intense moments, intense moments, less intense moments. Then the second thing you need to be able to do is you have to be able to vary your cadence. If you can only take, a, only take like 40 strokes a minute, uh, you have to have a higher cadence. You need to be able to vary your cadence because when you are going for a solo, paddling for a run, you have to increase your stroke rate. You have to increase your stroke rate or you have to have like really good technique where you're getting maximum power out of your, out of your stroke. But when you, and I'm talking about real novice paddling. Basically, most people struggle to take more than 40 strokes a minute, counting on one side. So if you count both sides, then that's 80 strokes a minute generally I'm gonna say it's, if you're starting paddling or you're in the beginning of your diamond paddling career, your stroke rate is gonna be around 35 to 50 30 strokes a minute. Um, whereas if you, you need to up that cadence, you need to be able to do 60 strokes in a minute. That is the level of cadence you need to go down and paddling. So if you practice your explosive fitness and you practice your cadence without ever going on a diamond paddle or even on flat water, you'll already have taken two steps in being better at diamond paddling. But then the third thing that you have to be able to do, which is bottom line, if you can't do this, you will never go down, is you have to be able to catch a wave on a surf ski. That is a swell, which is moving in a direction you need to be able to paddle the surf ski onto a swell and have that swell push that surf ski. And many paddlers where they live, do that on the wake of boats, and that's a good way to learn. It, it really is uh, because you do get that sensation and feeling, but ultimately the best way to learn is at a beach where there are waves that you can ride on your surf And they, they mustn't be big waves because you mustn't feel intimidated. You need to you need to be comfortable because it's not about catching a big wave. It's about catching a wave and riding that swell. It's that discipline of pulling the ski onto a swell and then and learning how to control the ski on that swell, how to have rudder control while you're moving forward at a speed which you aren't generating with your paddle. You are being, you're basically falling down the front of this swell. Those are the three pillars that you need to be a downwind paddler. But then, that's obviously not enough because now you can do it. Now you know that you can, you can paddle hard fast, you can have high cadence and you can catch a swell. Now, the real skill comes in doing that in open water and then putting them together one to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. Now, basically, the first thing you have to do is you have to be stable. Uh, if you're unstable, you're never gonna catch a run. The reason for this is that you're, the most unstable that you are when you're going down is at the crest of a wave. And if you do not paddle through that, I call it the zone of uncertainty. If you do not paddle through the zone of uncertainty, Onto the wave where gravity takes over, you'll never catch a run. In fact, you you might catch a run by mistake. Okay, so something will pick you up and push you forward, and, and you. But it wouldn't have been you in control and catching that swell. So you have to be stable, and then you have to teach yourself to paddle to start paddling for a run a bit earlier than you felt you should, and paddle just a little bit longer than you think you should, than you feel you should. So what happens is. People at the beginning, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about people that are right at the beginning of their downward paddling career, who start downward paddling and, and are getting into it. You will find that you will probably take six or seven strokes and then stop, six or seven strokes and then stop, six and seven strokes and then stop and brace. And you'll never catch a run, You'll just be getting pushed forward by these little bumps. Whereas if you put together 20 or 30 strokes, all of a sudden, you're going to put yourself in a position where you don't stop paddling, just blindly paddle. Don't, you just don't stop. The next thing you're going to put yourself in a position where you're catching a swell, and then you have to decide, well, am I going for it or not? And um, that is one, one thing. I find that people stop paddling too soon, as uh, they their brace, because they don't want to be unstable, uh, and you need to paddle through that zone, or they start too late, and, and they start when the swell has already started to pick up the back of the ski. Uh, to to pedal. Um, and then the final tip that I can give you is that you need to be strategic in your down, in in catching runs. So it is a common uh, a common principle in sports psychology and that if you have given yourself positive reinforcing uh, mantras to follow during a race or during an event, you will always default to the things that you shouldn't do. For instance. Uh, I'll be paddling along and I'll say, don't go to the left. Don't go to the left. I mean, I think golf is probably the best place here. You know, sports psychology is really strong in golf. You know, you're about to take a swing. Uh, you're going to tee off. And in your mind, you're thinking, don't pull it to the left. Don't pull it to the left. Don't pull it to the left. What happens? It pulls to the left. Because that's what you're thinking about all the time. Whereas if you have positive messages like, keep your head down. Don't look, don't look, look at the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your head down. And... Um, those are what's going to happen. So in diamond paddling, what I do is I've, I've created five rules, the five undeniable rules of diamond paddling. And uh, these rules give you something strategic to, to, to do. And uh, they, they might, look. I know they're not baloney, but the way that you perceive them might sound like, well, it doesn't really make sense to me. But at least what it is giving you is it gives you strategy positive reinforcing messages. And the first one is get your nose in the hole. So you want to get your nose of the ski in a trough. That's essentially what you want to do in diamond paddling anyway, is get the nose of the ski in a trough in between two waves, with the tail up and the nose down, and riding a swell. The second thing that you want to do is you want to just catch one at a time. Forget about what's happening around you. It's such a, uh, the, the, the environment is so dynamic. You know, you, you can get lost in looking at all the swells and the waves and out and the wind is blowing. Just focus on catching one at a time. But as soon as you put that one, that, that, that one, immediately start focusing on catching the next one. So keep up the run rate is the third rule. Keep up the run rate. Uh, it's like one day cricket. You just do singles, 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 Then every now and then, a the last one's gonna come through and you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna catch to the boundary. Okay, so keep up the run rate, third rule. Fourth rule is that little ones lead to big ones. And that's the principle of momentum. So focus on catching a small one first because it's easy to catch a small one. And then allow that to push you forward and then use that momentum to, to, to go on to a bigger one. And then the third principle is there's always one behind. It amazes me how many guys are caught by surprise by the fact that there's a run right behind them when they've just pulled off the back of one. So I'm telling you right now, wherever you are paddling in the world, I don't even have to see where you are paddling in the world. If, if you have fallen off back of the run, there's one right behind it. There's always one behind, so get ready to go for it. In fact, I've often experimented with not even looking for a run. Just as I've come off the back of a run, I just start paddling hard. And within two strokes, all of a sudden I can see, okay, I need to go left or right, there's a run there, and I'm busy going for it. So there's always one behind. Five rules. nose in the hole, one at a time, keep up the run rate, little ones lead to big ones, there's always one behind. Always one behind also means that you you look in front of you for runs. You don't look behind you. When you're catching waves on the beach, you look behind you so that you can catch a wave. In down paddling, you look in front. That's where you live. You look in front. You don't look behind for runs. You look in front. You're looking for the troughs. And Yeah. Then from there, it gets a bit more technical. You know, where to find them, uh, the direction of the wind, the swells. You, know, you always want to be paddling towards a landmark. You don't just paddle downwind blindly. You don't just catch runs and hope that you get to the finish point. You have to be paddling towards a landmark, and for that to happen, you have to divide the front and front of you into little quadrants, and you spend a little time in each of those quadrants. And um, you know, here I have to give a shout out to, to Oscar. Uh, yeah, when I started my seriously paddling career uh, and I was serious about it, I moved up to Durban uh, for a few months, Nick and I, in 2003, 2004, 2005, and you know, I basically dashed onto Oscar like a limpet, um, and uh, and you know, really try to learn a lot from from him, and and uh, he's the one that taught me this uh, this thing about quadrants, and uh, working in quadrants depending on where the wind's coming from and your your landmark, and looking for swells in those in those little quadrants, so it is david's uh, little tips
0: for for diamond paddling no, i think that's gold i mean I've, I've i mean i've been doing this for a while now and diamonds my passion <laughs> i've just i've just tripled my, my downward knowledge in, in the last 10 minutes david thank you so much but i, I want to i'm watching the time going on here and it's fascinating talking to you there's a whole bunch of topics i want to cover and i don't even gonna have time for it, but one of the ones i wanted to jump into is um is uh, and, and definitely if, if, if you're if you're if you're open to it, we're going to have you back and do this again but downwind technique and downwind paddling invariably involves strong winds, involves conditions that any sane person would think could be dangerous. So there's a safety component there. And I, I want to just get your opinion on on the role of safety, safety equipment. And I'd like you to bring in kind of, you know, the market products that you've got, because I know a lot of the products you've, you've produ- produced with that in mind. I know your, your, your PFD, for example, is, is, is well rated and so forth. But, you know, there's a, Within, within surf ski paddling, there's a the surf life saving crew who go back to you know, wearing the skull cap and a speeder and that's all we need. And of course, there's right through to, to the, the other extreme. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult place to, to navigate. And you kind of come from that surf life saving background. So I'm keen to see what you have to say about that.
1: Yeah. Look, it's not I, I, my view That is it's not actually very difficult, it's, it's, uh, it's actually quite simple. Uh, I'm glad that you touched on the surf life saving background, and that really is the first that is where we need to start. The, the, the roots of surfski paddling is in surf life-saving. And you, you're talking about athletes and paddlers here who made a career out of learning how to handle themselves in the ocean. So when it comes to guys that have got a surf life-saving background, you'll find that there's one uh, one element which which they all have, all these surf life-saving paddlers have, um, which, is, which carries through. And that is situational awareness. Being aware of 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 what the, the ocean, what the sea is doing. And the other thing is that they can all swim. All right, so you have this confidence of, I, I am confident in the ocean, and I know that if you know, if worse comes to worse, I can swim back to the beach. That being said, the majority of surf life-saving happens in very moderate climates where there's beaches where lots of people go to the beach. So, uh, so the water is generally warm. So where surf lifesaving is strong is where people would normally go to the beach to swim. Uh, so they needed surf lifesavers to rescue them when they got into trouble. So surf lifesavers had to be fit, had to know the ocean, had to be able to swim. But there, now surf ski paddling is cropping up in areas around the world where people don't go to the beach. You know, it's too flipping cold and the beach is horrible and you don't swim. But this, the conditions for open ocean surf ski paddling, are perfect. So now I'm sort of entering into a zone where a lot of paddlers don't share that skill of situational awareness and being aware of situations. So the first thing that I tell people is that when it comes to paddling, seriously paddling, and this is actually in our, in our Ocean ABC booklet that we or our Ocean ABC, the course that we designed, the first thing that I tell people is, you know, basically there's you have to be aware of your situation. There's three things you want to be aware of, your craft, your conditions your companions and when it comes to being aware of the conditions there's two things that affect your paddling that's it it's the wind and the waves so what is the wind doing how strong is it and which direction is it playing for starters and number two what are the waves doing and where are the waves breaking and i tell people at company you need to be super paranoid about the waves make it a because not that you're scared about it but you're like always thinking is there a wave where's there a wave and what's the wind doing is it going offshore is it going onshore that's kind of the question is you're asking yourself and answering yourself because you need to be the person ultimately to decide when you go when you go paddling. So that's the life-saving uh, section, is that that's where the roots of the sport are. But now the sport's grown, a lot of uptake of people that are learning how to paddle, and we really need to, um, uh, you know, now it becomes safety. So guys are gonna go offshore, And we know that perhaps they cannot swim uh, one kilometer easily. In fact, I would venture a guess to say that 95% of paddlers now, if you had to take them to a pool and say swim eight lengths, that's only 200 meters nonstop, I reckon most people won't be able to do that. Um, And that needs to tell you something. So the first thing it tells you is that uh, you shouldn't, get yourself in a situation where you need to be swimming more than 200 meters, um, unless you have assistance, unless you have help to swim the 200 meters, i.e. buoyancy. Uh, but the first thing that runs to happen is you don't want to get into that situation at all. So safety really comes down to, first of all, being proficient in your boat, so being stable. You have to be stable in your ski. Uh, you have to be stable. If you're not stable, then you're unsafe. So you have to have a stable boat. So whatever conditions you go out in, make sure that you are stable and you're comfortable in that in that boat. Don't don't tell yourself the lie that you're gonna buy a, a less stable boat and then learn how to be stable in that boat. It's not gonna happen. You know, it might happen for a select few people. Generally speaking, uh, start with a stable boat, get really good at paddling in down conditions in your stable boat, and then decide to go up to a less stable or a faster boat. The second thing that you need to do is you have to know how to remount your ski. It is like, so I cannot stress more how important it is to learn how to remount your ski. You need to, literally every time you go paddling, practice remounting your ski. You need to be able to get back onto your ski from both sides, left side and right hand side, uh, just from a confidence point of view. And there's two methods to remounting your ski. You need to be, and if you really, really want to get into it, you should be able to do both ways. To remount that bum first or the cowboy method where you throw your legs over the back. Look, there's pros and cons to both, um, uh, but and I know this is a debate that I'll have with, with a, a few other top paddlers, but essentially I'm saying, okay, forget about how you do it, just make sure you can do it, okay? You can remount the surf then, uh Obviously learning how to catch a wave is, is important so you can control the boat, but then when it comes to safety equipment, here, really, my issue is that, you know, the mocker brand was born out of a desire for people to be able to paddle better. You know, we want people to perform at their best. That is really the core value of our brand. It's about, it's about, it's about following your passion, finding your purpose in that, and then doing it to the best of your ability. And so that's where the life, life jacket was born because when I saw that life jackets were gonna become compulsory, uh, there was nothing on the market that was comfortable that I felt I could race in at the best of my ability. So that's why I designed the market PFD in the way that it looks with the mesh and the separate foam blocks and and all that. Um, so that is the performance issue, but essentially what you're trying to create is you're trying to create a culture of safety. Not that we are nafs, okay, and we are, you know, we don't want to be like heavy equipment laden. What I want to try and create a culture of safety not saying safety ie we don't go out when it's big no quite the opposite we do go out when it's big that's what surf ski paddling ultimately is about people should people should expect to see surf skis on the water when the wind is blowing 30 knots you know we had 30 knot blow here in fishhook on on the weekend and there were stacks of guys going down and anyone that lives in this area is readily expecting to see surf skis out in the water on 30 knots, but what we do have here on Fishek side uh, is a very strong safety culture. No one is gonna paddle down in here without a leash. It's not gonna happen. Because you know, if you've lost your ski, you're not paddling anymore, now you're swimming. So you better be able to swim. But the first thing is to not lose your ski. Just don't lose your ski. So for that, you want to train yourself to grab your ski if you fall off. That's where surf saving comes in. You know, in surf lifesaving, if you lost your ski, you lost the race bottom line. So guys, you'll find that the life lifesavers, they won't rely on a leash, even though they might have a leash, but they'll, if they fall off, they think they're going to fall off, they're going to grab the ski, first thing. The leash is a backup plan, but it's is a, a very good backup plan. Have a leash. Then um, because leashes fail and because you don't know how you're going to end up in the water, whether you faint or have a heart attack or something happens, um, it's not going to be possible for you to keep yourself afloat without having a, a buoyancy aid. And I'm going to touch on a sore point here, but, but, but in my opinion, inflatable buoyancy aids aren't the answer when it comes to seriously paddling. Not, not because they don't work or not because they don't um, meet, the, meet the required standard, but uh, because for that 0.1% of population of paddlers that are going to have an epileptic fit, uh, on the the water and faint and fall into the water, I don't want to be the person that created a culture where it was okay not to have a buoyancy aid on. You know, and it, I, I want the culture to be that you you can, you can remount your surf ski, you're going to be leashed to your surf ski, and you're going to have a life jacket on when you paddle downwind. And then on top of that, you're going to have some form of communication, some form of Someone knowing if you're in trouble. Either you're gonna send out an SOS beacon on your phone, or you're gonna have someone waiting for you at the end who knows that after an hour you're not in, that this is a problem. Um, some form of, of, of backup where, you know, some form of communication. And This is a cultural thing. It's not it's not a checkbox. You know, the last thing we wanna do is create a checkbox system, like check all the boxes. Okay, I've got my life jacket, I've got my leash, I've got my phone, I'm going paddling. Um, it really needs to be a cultural thing. And for that to happen, you really actually need to think of the situation that you're putting yourself into and then run through the scenarios, the possible scenarios. So I put together a, a coaching manual for the ICF, which I think is available for download on their website. And, and in that coaching manual, the research that I did, um, one of the things I researched was what are the, the number one causes of surf ski emergencies uh, in the world? So around the world, what are the number one causes of emergencies of surf skis? So you want to take a few swings at
0: that one? In my, pers- in, in my, my personal experience, guys guy's not been able to get back on the boat.
1: All right, spot on. The number one cause of surf ski emergencies is not being able to remount, okay? Followed very closely by losing your surfski. Okay, so if you can get to those two, you, you can remount your ski, either because you are very good at remount, and or you've got a very stable boat. So you're not going to fall off in the first place. Okay, that's why it's so important to be stable. Because if you're not going to put yourself in a position where you're going to fall off, you know that you can remount. You know that you're either going to grab your ski. You've got it. In, you've got, you've made a habit out of grabbing your surf ski and not rely on your leash. Then you've also got a leash. Immediately you've negated the two number one causes of emergencies. Okay.
0: The next one is
1: actually cold water. cold water, cold water shock. So being falling in cold water and not being able to then function or remount or you've spent a lot of time in, in, in cold water, you know, once, you, once you've either lost your surf ski or you can't remount it anymore, apart from that happening because you had a heart attack or because something happened, um, once you've passed that point, you know, it's, it's about 10 to 15 minutes, now things start to escalate very, very quickly. Uh, in terms of an emergency. Now, there's maybe two or three or four emergencies a year that I that come across my desk. You know, where people have either sadly lost their lives or where I hear of a, a situation. And, um, and these situations, when I look at them, there's two, two or three of them that happened with all the safety gear present. And then it comes down to an issue of being situa- aware of your situation, and maybe not have gone out when it was when it was too big for your mobility, or having a ski that was too unstable for you. But generally, most of the emergencies that come across across my path are when someone really hasn't hasn't taken the time to to um, have the right go with them, or or that kind of thing, you know. Um, so essentially. When it comes to safety, I, I, I uh, want to say that we, for you, if you're a top paddler, you know that you don't need perhaps all the paraphernalia and you want to be able to paddle uh, without having all this stuff on you. You know, and I get that. I totally get that, that you don't want to be addicted and you're going to be safe, okay? What I want to say is let's think about the, the type of culture that we're creating. Uh, And for me as a top peddler, the example that I want to set is that that you have to, number one, have all the gear, but number two, have this idea of how am I going to rescue myself, basically. Um, If I get into trouble, how am I going to rescue myself? What am I going to do to make sure that I get back to land safely? And that is probably the number one thing that we need to teach people is what are you going to do to get back to land safely without any assistance. When you ask yourself a question, now all of a sudden there's two things that happen. The first thing that happens is you run through the possible scenarios. Like, okay, what, are the, what is the what is the worst thing that can happen on this diamond? Okay, the worst thing that can happen is a shark breaches and bites, off, you know, bites the skin off. The chances of that happening are very small. In fact, they are next to nothing. Uh, in fact, if it does happen and you've got it on video, you're probably gonna be set for life. Um, so, so the chance of that happening are very very small. But the next possible scenario that is going to happen is that you are going to fall off your ski, and either not be able to remount, or you're going to lose your surf ski. So it makes sense then in your mind to prepare for that not to happen, or then to have you know the next you know well, what am I going to do uh, if that does happen? You know what's my next course of call? But I, I suppose, and, and that is why I say that it becomes a cultural issue. Um, we don't want to, the last thing we want to do is stop surf skis from going out in, when, that, when, when there's high winds blowing. But obviously, when it's 35 knots plus, that is not for everyone. You know, you, you have to know, show wisdom, know when to show restraint, and know when the ability, when it's, when it's beyond your ability. Uh, but it, 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 is, it needs to be okay. And I'm talking about not just South Africa, but in other countries where there's not a lot of paddlers around and you have these maritime authorities which are which think we're crazy We're just in kayaks and there's like some lunatic going out in like rough water. No, you know, no one stops kite surfers to go kite surfing when it's 20 knots because that's what they expect them to do. And people should be expecting surf skis to go out when the wind is 30 knots. You know, I want to be able to go to um, – New York, and when the wind is blowing 30 knots, I want to be able to go paddling without the Coast Guard having a freak out that there's someone on a kayak paddling in 35 knots of wind. You know, it should be okay. They should be expecting that. But the way that the, the, the way that that becomes okay is when we, as a movement, we as athletes, have shown to be responsible when it comes to getting on the water. So here in as a microcosm here in Fishhook successfully done that. We have successfully created a scenario where the local authorities know that the paddlers are gonna be on the water when it's 35 knot plus, not just not just one or two paddlers, a lot of paddlers, okay? We've earned their trust, we've earned people's trust, we've earned our own trust, that when someone leaves the slipway at Miller's Point or leaves the beach at Buffalo or goes to Cape Point, they're gonna have a phone they're going to be leashed to their boat, they're going to have a life jacket, and they're going to know how to remount. And and there's an unspoken rule uh, amongst paddlers that those are the the necessary requirements. And because we've done that, because because that has become a cultural thing when you do a militia we are able to really push the boundaries. And this is a principle that follows in life. It's a this is a life lesson that boundaries are what actually creates freedom, really. You know, when you have set the boundaries, set the rules, you do not play a rugby game without rules. And the rules are what allow a game to happen. So when you've set, when you've created rules, and they're not rules, I mean, they rules for yourself. When you've created rules for yourself, now you've given yourself a framework within which to create Okay. So, a bit of a philosophical end there. I mean, another nice way to put it is music. You know, no one will deny that music is the most creative, uh, uh, what's the word, metaphysical phenomenon uh, on earth. You know, music is so creative. There are so many iterations of music, so many genres, so many ways that you can put notes together. Uh, there's jazz, there's rock and roll, there's opera, there's, I mean, think about it. Think about what music is, okay? Harmony. Music is one of the most mathematical and rigid systems on this planet. And they are governed by mathematical rules. That you, if, you, if you break the rule, you're not making music, you're making a noise, okay? So and that is what culture is. And culture is a combination of what we put in place and what we allow. Okay, if we allow any Tom, Dick and Harry to go paddling in thirty knots of wind, without a life jacket, without a leash, without any backup plan, we've allowed that culture to happen. All right, and and, and this is where top paddlers need to really see their responsibility as icons and as people that people follow their, their example, okay? If you've allowed that to happen, then when someone halfway across the world Uh, Drought, because they've seen that this is what is allowed then it basically is on our heads. But then at the same time it's a combination of what you allow and what you create. And now let's create the culture. We say, right, guys, we want to push boundaries. We want to go essentially we want to get to 15 knots of wind down in padding. But that's not going to happen unless we've created a set rules um, as as to how that is allowed to happen. And so We've spoken about being able to being stable in your boat, remount, being able to remount your boat, being aware of your situation, ready to rescue yourself, and then having the safety gear uh, on board. And really, honestly, having a leash and having a life jacket on is not going to make you enjoy your paddle any less, or not going to make you paddle any slower. Uh, It really is a small price to pay uh, in terms of enhancing and and, uh, supporting the culture, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more actually. And uh, a very interesting approach there. I'm weaving a bit of philosophy into, uh, into the concept of PFDs to, to, uh, to draw a crazy parallel. <laughs> David, it's been fantastic. Yeah, listen, Host, you PFT,
1: yep. When you Your put market, market PFD, it's a thinking, thinking product.
0: Thinking man's product. This has certainly been a thinking man's podcast. And David, thanks so much for joining us. We're coming up to an hour and a half that you and I have been chatting here. Hopefully, you guys have been listening in your car and we've managed to uh, help you get from point A to point B. And you've enjoyed yeah. listening to, uh, to what David's had to say. Certainly, I found it fascinating. David, we're definitely going to have you back. You definitely are, I think, the, the thinking man's uh, paddler. Yeah. And uh, you, 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 uh, I, think, I think paddlers, I think the modern paddler right now has a lot to, 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 um, to thank you for in terms of, of the products we've got access to, and I think also the you know the way that the sport is right now in South Africa. I think yourself uh, and, and mocker Products have got a role to play in that. So thank you very much for that. But it's awesome having you along. So stoked. We're definitely going to we're definitely going to get you back. And guys, uh, you know, David's still very much paddling. So uh, I don't know, he's a hang of an approachable guy. I've got to know. him. So if you see him at the race, international, local, go over say hi and uh, challenge him on uh, on some of his concepts. I think he's keen for a debate. And uh, David, thanks yeah. so much, man. Great having you on board.
1: Thank you very so much. Fantastic.
0: We'll catch you later. Cheers. 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 That's it, guys. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Tune in next time for all things paddling with sasurfsky.com.